Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we're talking about managers of companies and how you know if a thing's got a moat and whether you're capable of understanding it. And if you can do all these things, is it on sale? And if it is, can you make the kinds of returns that will make you wealthy, even work in a regular job? And can you? Have- can you, Dad? Can you? It's up to you. Oh, man. It's up to you. Can you? Yes. Will you? It's up to you. Now, the, the, the good news is that small investors have tremendous advantages in the market compared to fund managers. And what that lets us do is have the hope of beating the market substantially, getting high rates of return with you know low levels of risk because we don't have to answer to investors. We can think long term. Um, nobody's making us swing at the pitch. Mm. We can just sit there and watch and wait until we know we've got something we understand. Yes, we can. Which makes it really not a lot of difference than going out and buying a piece of real estate or going out and buying a, a franchise or buying even a laundromat downtown. All of those things require about the same level of, of knowledge. So if we can figure out enough about real estate to buy a rental home, that is going to be a good investment for the next 20 years, we can do this. We just can't do it with very many stocks. We can do it with a handful. And that's all we need, it turns out. Warren Buffett recently said that if you <clears throat> if you figure on buying 20 companies in your lifetime and you get four of those right without getting the other 16 wrong, wrong, <laughs> like, you know, uh-huh. like disaster wrong, but... You know, you can get some strikes, but you just don't just don't lose your money. If you get four of those right, you said you'll be very rich. Well, that four. sounds great. <laughs> so that's what we're doing here on this podcast. But it's an <laughs> Working interesting, on finding those four. Let's find four. I like it. Find four. That's our new motto. Yeah. And it starts with finding one. So let's narrow it down to that. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting point that you made about how we get to just sort of relax and we're not under any time pressure to buy something, I suppose, except for the stock price going up past where you would want to buy it. But, you know, assuming a company's moving fairly slowly, you, you've got enough time. And I'm right now debating buying a company, which I won't say what it is, but um, but I've been sort of like appreciating having the time to think it over for a few days and maybe a week and just sort of see how I feel about it because it's not a, there are not a lot of companies that I'm going to buy per the dad rule number one method. That's right. So it's a big decision. I love the idea. You're not talking about it because if you talked about it and this, this, this rule one podcast is a broadcast out to thousands and thousands of people we've we've now had over two million downloads yeah thanks everybody yeah and but what that means is that you talk about it you've just entered uh a lot of people into a competition who may drive the price up when you want the price to go down you know i I did not think about feeling like i was competing against everybody listening to us but now i will because you wanted to go down I mean, we want to buy this as cheap as possible. So telling everybody what we're doing is a bad idea. <clears throat> it's one of the reasons that it's hard for people um, to go and teach this 
concept of investing because essentially you're adding more and more competitors. No, to, I don't uh, like that at field. all though. I don't think of it like that. I, I think our listener, I'm so glad you're all listening. Thank you for listening to us. It just supports us to talk to, to talk to my dad once a week, which <laughs> is a nice thing to be supported about. And um, now I think if we, as the rule number one, if family can all get into a good stock together, I think that just a rising tide floats all boats. Is that the phrase? Yeah, lifts all lifts boats. all boats. Yep. Yeah. And you never know who's swimming naked till the tide goes out, <laughs> which is the flip side of that <clears throat> that thing. Um, so, <laughs> so one of the things that we we started talking about was this idea of management being so critical. Um, and wanting managers to have integrity, but not having a real way to tell, um, because we have learned, obviously, the hard way in our life that you really don't know who has integrity until they get under a lot of pressure, which is what I mean by saying that you don't know who's swimming naked till the tide goes out. You really don't get to see how people are going to respond until they're in a crisis. And then you then it's too late. Right. You have you hope for them to do the right thing. Then they don't. Yeah, so I mean, I'm sure you, that's something you, we've all experienced in our own lives. And now this is yep. with people we've never met. Yep. So we all, we're human. We all have this potentiality to make bad decisions under pressure. And it turns out that actually the more pressure, the more bad decisions we're capable of making because of what Danny Kahneman called thinking fast or system one thinking where uh, this is a lovely book, by the way, we've talked about it before, Danny, Danny Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, um, where he's basically saying that slow thinking is rational. You take your time, like what's 17 times 34? And you got to work through it. Whereas fast thinking is, oh, a lion in the bush, run. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the fast thinking that evolved that we, we evolved to do, um, because if you didn't run, you got eaten and you didn't reproduce. So that gene disappeared out of the gene pool, which would allow you to think rationally and carefully and slowly while being attacked by a lion. That didn't work. So we ended up developing biases based on sharp experiences, based on what we're taught when we're little and so on, that help us respond quickly to things like don't walk in front of that truck, you know, stop right there. So we, we developed this bias and it affects our thinking in really strange ways that nobody quite realized that we all have this stuff going on. And that's where racism, <clears throat> or at least, excuse me. One yeah, second. you need some water or something. <clears throat> yeah, stuck in stuck So, in But throat. I'll just so, add while you're having some water that Daniel Kahneman is a behavioral economist, and we've spoken about him uh, at length on the podcast. And it is, it's, uh, I mean, it sounds like it sort of is information that matters only to other people. But this genuinely has helped me understand value investing better because so much of what we're doing is about looking into the management, looking into the executives at at a company and trying to predict, are these the kind of people who are going to make good decisions over the next five to 10 years? I mean, that's hard to predict about best friends and spouses, much less total strangers (laughs) who are like, you know, somebody you're never going to meet in your life. So it's it's a which, challenging which thing. And me... I think that this behavioral economics research that's um, becoming quite popular now is really helpful with it. 
And and again, it it brings us full circle back to the genius of this strategy that that uh, Graham and Buffett and Munger and, and others have developed that we call the Rule One strategy, which is to focus on not losing money. Right, you're not worried about making it so much as not losing it, which means essentially you're looking out, you know, five to ten years and saying, will this be worth more over that time frame than I'm paying for it today? That's really the bottom line question. And it's why it's so easy for people, relatively easy, to go buy a piece of real estate in a good neighborhood. They feel a high degree of confidence that in five or 10 years, it'll be worth more than it's worth today. So we, we focus on that issue and break it down into four categories. Do I understand this thing? Do I understand the house next door as a rental property? Um, what is its moat? What protects it from being a bad investment? And the answer is its location is good. That's called a moat. And third, the people who are running this investment for me, are do they have integrity? Can I trust them that they'll do a good job or will they're going to run it into the ground? And fourth, am I buying this at a big discount to its real value? And that last thing is there to protect us from all the things we cannot know necessarily as an yeah, investor. Yeah. So the, <clears throat> pretty genius structure here that helps us. And if you think about it, if a business has a big protective moat, like this house next door is in a great location, I can recover from a bad manager, right? I mean, I'll start to notice that the numbers are going down, that everything's crappy with my house. I don't know, I'm going to get out having good tenants or it's vacant. And I can recover from that. I can fire that manager. I can get a new manager. And the location of the house means that long term, my investment is still yeah, safe. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. <laughs> A bad manager, honestly, doesn't really worry me too much. Like, one of the sayings that you say pretty regularly is that Warren Buffett said you should buy a company that a monkey could run because one day a monkey will. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's kind of <laughs> cute and true and, like, fine. That doesn't worry me so much. Because a company can get over a bad manager. What really worries me is someone who's a good manager, who's smart as a whip and evil. Those are the people evil. that worry me. Because those people are not just making some dumb decisions, you know, like maybe creating a new product line that isn't that great, putting some money where it shouldn't have been. No, these people who are actually evil are are moving money around in very intelligent ways for their own ends. Those are the people that worry me. Yeah, I agree with you completely. <clears throat> An idiot isn't really the big problem, right? It's sort of, you get the guy who invents new Coke and within two years yeah. he's gone. That's not going to destroy no. Coca-Cola. What would destroy Coca-Cola is somebody comes in and leverages up the company like like you you get a house next door and you borrow 120% of its value. Mm -hmm. Just doing that to any company in the world could create a situation where no matter how good it is, it can't survive. Um, and your, your shares will be wiped out because someone has gone out and made a very clever move to jack up the company on a short run. But in the long run, it's a disaster. So I agree with you Or somebody like the dry ships company that we spoke about last episode where the the management of the company, you know, uh, we'll see how it all shakes out, but it seems to be a bit fishy. And 
in that situation, I mean, they did some genius moves over there. It's impressive, but genius. But notice they also did a couple of things that that really shine a spotlight on some devious. You know, that's true. At, that an investor could have seen right away, right away. And the number one thing is debt. You've got a big debt issue going on in that company. And people who came in looking into that business with the amount of debt that that thing was carrying were looking for trouble right off the bat. They were just speculating that things were going to work out on the short run. And that debt came in and started to create That's real issues. That's a good issues. point. And the debt was being created to the benefit of the CEO. So now you've got an integrity issue. You've got an automatic conflict of interest where the guys are creating debt obligations, selling off tons of stock and grabbing boats from himself and making himself wealthier. So using it like his own private piggy bank, that is a very scary thing right That's a great point. And it's something no, that, that you've said that over and us. over to watch out for debt in a company. So I hope that exactly. takes us to Sears and Kmart. Sears. Now, are they are they owned by the same umbrella company? Uh, well, they're public, so they're 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 SHLD okay. owns so all of those Kmart, things. Just, yes, I know almost nothing about <clears throat> right. this, just to be clear. So I know that Sears and Kmart exist, and I have shopped at both. And I know that you mentioned last time you wanted to talk about them and uh, and that a hedge fund guy runs it now. So let's right. talk about that. So, so here's Sears and Kmart going along for a lot of years and then, you know, started to have problems as better operators came in uh, running companies like Walmart and Target and started taking market share away from these really venerable companies, right? Sears, perhaps more than than uh, any other company in a country provided products for the little guy and a way that they could get them in rural America that you just couldn't have done otherwise and became really famous for some of its brands like Craftsman and for being the place where you go to get, you know, all your, get your car fixed, get your tires done. Yeah, you go buy your washing machine there. Yeah, specifically washing machines, appliances. And so they had this great reputation, but over time, um, Walmart and other companies, Best Buy, um, came in and carved their price uh, out from under them. And they didn't respond well enough trying to maintain their margins. And ultimately, um, they gone through restructuring a bankruptcy of some sort. Um, and this hedge fund manager named Eddie Lampert, who runs a company called ESL, bought them both and combined oh, them. Oh, I see. So that's and, how they came together. Yeah. So that's how they came together. That's right. He pulled them out of uh, the bankruptcies. <clears throat> and what he did was basically force management to stop thinking about them as growing businesses. And Lampert basically started to tell them, just think about cash flow and let's just get the cash flow going. But in spite of being cash flow oriented, they lost more and more market share. The less these companies were operated as an ongoing long-term business where you would invest in the business to keep it competitive. Lampert instructed these guys to not do that. And gradually you ended up with showrooms that didn't have anything in them, right? They were kind of sort of empty and run down looking and, <clears throat> and dirty and all of the things that, you know, happen when you start to undercut the constant process of reinvesting in a business. And so Lampert began to sell off stuff over time in order to keep cash flow going. And so these companies have gone through this 
big kind of restructuring under his control and have continued to lose cash, lose cash, lose cash, lose cash, and continue to sell stuff off. And so was he thinking that he would be able to turn them around? Or was this the plan? He kept... It, I, I, I think arguably this is the plan. But I think also arguably he's spent too much money trying to keep them in business. <clears throat> so he's kind of walking this careful line or trying to where they're staying in business enough to, you know, generate an outlet for $3 billion worth of inventory that's paid for and to keep the property worth something so he can sell it down the road as opposed because to- Because Sears hole. owns its own stores. And wrecking the shopping center. It owns a lot of them. It owns uh, probably now it owns 400 stores or something still. And these are all stores that have were, were purchased, like the land was purchased and the store was built many, many years ago. And they're on the books. And we've talked about this before. They're on the books at the original cost. So the assets that Sears is showing are not necessarily, it's either on the books at the original cost or coming through the bankruptcy, they re- they remarked everything to the value in bankruptcy, <clears throat> which would also not probably be today's current value. So it, the argument here is that there's a lot of value that is remaining to be unlocked in Sears and Kmart, selling off real estate, selling off brands. They sold off Craftsman just oh, a few really? months ago That's for almost a, a billion one. dollars. Yep. Big one. And they've got all these appliances, you know, that they've got. Uh, stores for. And so the argument is we're going to stay in business as we evolve into a kind of um, Amazon competitor online and gradually sell these stores off. And Wait, yes, you Sears have this look is going like, to try to move its business exactly. online and sell its stores off. That's that's their ostensible exactly. long term plan. For real. That's their long term plan. And, for real, yeah, because they, I mean, if you think about it, they basically are, were a, um, a a catalog company that became a retailer with stores, and now they're going back to becoming the modern version of a catalog company. And you'll you see that happening with a lot of the big box stores. They're, you know, better, Best Buy's trying to do that. Bed Bath & Beyond's trying to do that. Um, William Sonoma's trying to go back to its roots Oh, as I a catalog, catalog company, but do it online. Oh my gosh, the Christmas <clears throat> catalog. I just, I could spend an hour looking at that. I want everything. <laughs> we should discuss that sometime. I would love to talk to you about Williams-Sonoma. They're getting pounded as are all retailers that have, you know, physical presence. They're getting pounded by Amazon. And the question is, some of them are going to succeed. Is Williams-Sonoma one of them? And if so, they may be on sale or really, as soon as we hit recession, they may just go massively on sale. Well, if that, so it, on that, that it's going to be about let's, having let's, a better experience than buying from Amazon. And I just don't see Sears accomplishing that in any way, because basically those stores were these bare, just bare bones. You walk down aisles of washing machines and you know, pick the one you want. And that was their whole deal. And it all worked until the internet. And, uh, and that's essentially what you get from Amazon, except better because you also have reviews. Well, without, without digging into whether that will succeed or not, what if this company is worth $90 a share if they break it up and sell it off tomorrow? And it's available on right now for okay, $8. Okay, where are you getting your 90 You can buy it for $8. So... <clears throat> 
it comes from Bruce Berkowitz, who is one of the largest owners of, of Sears stock and Sears debt and has been for a, a long, long time. So he is definitely, you know, pitching his book here. He's selling his, he's selling, selling us on the idea that what he's got is valuable. So we don't necessarily ascribe a lot to that. But in 2013, before Sears started dumping a lot of stuff, um, an independent group came out named Baker and had independent appraisals and found that the real estate was worth just by itself about $7 billion. And to put that into context, right now at $8 a share, it's a $900 million company. Real estate's probably worth more today than it was in 2013, arguably, uh -huh. right? Because it's gone up since then. So if you said, okay, well, that the real estate that Amazon or that uh, Sears has all by itself is worth, let's say, $5 billion right now because they sold off a block of it um, to uh, REIT. $5 billion, you can buy today for a billion dollars. And that doesn't include the brands that it can continue to sell and $3 billion of inventory that it's holding wait, right wait, now. Wait, 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 wait. So you wait, go, wait, okay, wait, well, they're not going to sell the How do you know that the real estate is worth <laughs> yeah. $5 billion? Where are you getting that? Well, again, that's just coming from an independent appraisal in 2013 that was done by a group mm, to see if okay. they wanted to buy Sears. So they published it. They published it, went online with it. They don't really have okay, an axe to grind because they didn't buy in. So that was really, okay. So we say, okay, it was $7 billion. We'll give that a fair number. And then what Sears did is it sold off about $2 billion of that to a, a REIT called Seritage, and which Warren Buffett, by the way, owns about 10% of. And now they're left, assuming the $7 billion was right, they're left with $5 billion of real estate. And that... And obviously they owe some money on it, but there there basically is eight hundred nine hundred million dollars of of uh, market price right now, and I'm I'm interested in trying to figure out is this is this something we could look at to maybe own, and if they liquidate the company, we have this huge home run. Now here's why I'm bringing it up right now in the context of management. This management team, this hedge fund manager. He could take that company Well, that was my next question is, tomorrow. what's their debt situation? Their debt's significant, and they owe it oh, to so him. Oh, so he doesn't have any sort part. of interest in that. Sarcasm, sarcasm. No, not at all. Right. And I mean, Bruce Berkowitz and Eddie Lampert own, I think, 80% of the debt of this company, and or 80% or of the stock, excuse me, the stock, and an equal proportion of debt. So what these guys could do is wipe out all the shareholders except themselves, right? So think about this as for clever little devious play, is if you own 80% of the debt, you can go into bankruptcy court, wipe out all the shareholders, and if you own the same proportion of debt as you do to stock, you could walk out with 100% of the stock mm -hmm. just as a result of the debt that you own. You, you redo the stock and now you own all of it, right? Now, the, the interesting part of this is because they own shares of the company equally with their debt, are they actually incentivized to go through Chapter 11? Why would they do it? In other words, they, they already own a huge piece of this company. It doesn't really help them a lot. They're not going to be able to wipe out other debt holders pro rata to themselves, right? They, they, everybody gets the same split. So I don't see that they yeah, come out of Chapter 11. Yeah, I would also say they probably would have done right it now. already. But on the other hand, maybe they thought they'd give it a shot. And Good argument. 
as things start to continue downhill and it becomes clearer and clearer that there's no way back up the hill. Uh, I don't know. So I'm proposing this as a way of thinking about management, right? Here you have management that could be incentivized to just dump all the shareholders, but they happen to be a shareholder as well. And maybe they're not thinking that way. They're running the company. They're not founders. They're not interested in this thing's reputation or the long-term you know, feeling of having created yeah. something wonderful in the world. Yeah. They're going to strip Which it down. Which is why I said to you, sell it off how on and, earth is this a rule it, number one investment? And you said, well, it's all about the money. It's buying a $10 bill for $5. It may be buying a $10 bill for, for $1 or $2, actually. Um, and But obviously, nothing we do is just all about the money. We are insisting on tying our values to the investments always. So you have to look at this and see, is this something you could ethically stand behind, right? So the, the disassembly of an old line, uh, high quality company, and what comes out of that? What is actually going to be the result of that? And um, one argument would be that, you know, really you're just allowing other retailers to come into that space that they need in these really quality shopping centers and rehabilitate the whole shopping center, save the entire area. Um, that could go in decline if the shopping center goes down. So you can you can run around the the ethics of the case however you want to do it, but the the point is that the management team is all important here. You can't go make this investment without considering what this management team is going to do or what they're trying to do. And if this is too hard, then it goes in the too hard bucket. No matter how great mm -hmm. it looks like, essentially this investment lives or dies on whether or not you trust those two people. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Do you trust them not to screw you as a shareholder? Do you trust them not to screw you as a shareholder? And if that's too hard a decision, if you're not sure, then you don't invest alongside them. And one way you might be able to figure out whether that's too hard is to see if there are a lot of other ah, guru okay. type investors so in this investment. So see what everybody else is up you know? to. Are, yeah, see what everybody else is up to and get an idea if, you know, other really good investors are seeing that this, oh, this is a nine to one return if Eddie Lampert and Bruce Berkowitz do the right thing. And I can tell you for sure, uh, well, as sure as I can be about something, that Bruce Berkowitz wants to do the right thing, right? He doesn't want his fund to have a wipeout. But when you say do the right thing, what you mean debt. is that instead so, of going into bankruptcy, they would just wind up the company by selling off its assets, pay down the debt to themselves, pay off the debt to themselves completely, and yes. close down the company rather yes. than going through yes. bankruptcy and restructuring. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Exactly what you want to see happen here. Um, and assuming you're okay with that process about those people losing their jobs, about the whole uh, the whole evolution of this Sears store and Kmart's, if you're, if you're cool with that and that's part of what you're all right with, then yeah, that's what that's the outcome that you want to have happen. And if well, you it's don't interesting get that, that, in that, you can get wiped out. You're already assuming that there's no way the Sears is coming back. There's just no way. Like those are the two options. It gets sold off or broken up and sold off or bankruptcy. And, and I there is a possibility that this could continue to run as a standalone. <clears throat> they've developed this um, sort of credit card 
um, which has huge bonuses connected to it. Um, and they're developing a program of at-home shopping. So they are trying with that. delivery in much smaller, they much are... smaller footprint stores. Oh yeah, they're okay. they're trying hard, mm. um, but it's been unsuccessful so far. And I mean, you look at retailers like J.C. Penney, um, and you see them in, in yeah. serious decline after yeah. real serious money got put into it to try to fix it. You know, and it's just you just like it's definitely an uphill battle. Um, and so, you know, what I want to do is I want to know is are other really good investors climbing into this investment? And what I see when I look at the, the, what I would call the guru holdings under, on Sears is that Eddie Lampert, of course, is in it. And Bruce Berkowitz, of course, are in it and they have big chunks of it. But I also see that Leon Cooperman is in there. Who's a good investor, although he's not in for a very large part of his portfolio and Francis Chow, who is an incredibly good investor who works closely with Prim Watsa up in Canada. So these are real, both these guys are really solid rule one type investors. Neither one of them has a major piece of this business. They're they're both the kind of investors that are willing to, to do, you know, 10 or 15% of their portfolio in something if they really like it. But they're both in at prices, you know, right around and like this price right portfolios? here, about eight bucks. And um, three and a half uh, for for Francis Chow, and he, uh, and so just looking at where he's at, what I see is that in the second quarter of 2016, he bought another 400,000 shares at $13, and here's the beauty of having data. I see that in the fourth quarter of 2016, so six months ago, he unloaded 300,000 of those shares. Wait a second, so he $7. sold them for a loss? And 54 cents. He did. So he's sliding out of this thing and reducing his portfolio. That's important to notice the difference between when I was yeah. looking at it, I, all I could see there for the start off is he's in it. And now hmm. I see that he's exiting. So that's important to know. Yeah. Right. And Cooperman has almost nothing in it. So the only guys that are in it right now are Berkowitz and Lampert. So why isn't, why aren't other big investors seeing this opportunity and jumping in there with them. And so I have to be cautious. I can't just go, oh, yeah, well, I know more than those guys. You see what I'm saying? So even though it looks like a huge return potentially, like eight or nine to one, the risk here is enough that really good investors are not taking a piece of this deal. So it's all about the management team. If you could figure out what these managers are going to do better than the rest of the really strong investors that we know, then you could get in there and make a great return. But since you can't, it goes Sounds into too hard box, hard I think. Because I don't know Just how, I, I don't even know if I can agree with those words, figure out what they're going to do. It's a guess. It's a guess of what they're going to do. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. So I, here's the thing. I, I, I want to contrast this to um, my favorite company to talk about, apparently, is Chipotle Mexican Grill, <laughs> which I knew you were going to laugh about. <laughs> but this is a management team that is much more clearly sided with the investor, right? It's the founder, Steve Ells, and he's kicked out his co-CEO, and now he's running the thing all by himself to get it right. They've gone through this huge E. coli scare, and the stock has dropped from $760 down to $300. And, um, and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I really want a piece of this. So I started buying it. And... Um, 
And the reason I can talk about that is because I'm not going to buy any more for a while unless it goes to 200. So feel free to do whatever you want with that information. <laughs> Just full disclosure there. And I'm, so I'm talking my book here for sure. But the reason I'm confident to go into this right now, even if I could be wrong on the price by hundreds of dollars, is I'm confident it'll be worth more in 10 years because they're going to continue to open up 200 stores a year, number one. And number two, I'm, I'm very confident the management team has the same incentives as me. Why? Because they have no debt. There's nothing to drive this company to an extreme measure. They're profitable. Their revenue's back almost where it was at their record year and they will continue to increase their earnings ratio. So the margins are going to go up in the future. Yeah, I just don't know how yeah. much they're going to go up. So I don't know for sure how much they're worth. It's hard. It's I'm really hard to know with these kind of event situations that really affects the main product of that company, as in food poisoning at a restaurant over and over and over. Oh, not just a restaurant, right. but one that's focused on fresh, natural right. food you know, for the, for the little guy and you get E. coli, but it's, yeah, been but I guess it's, I guess I'm saying it's hard to e. know scale. what that does long-term to a restaurant like that. Like how much farther will it go down and then how much, I'm sure it'll bounce, but how much will it bounce? Those are the, those are the guesses. Well, that's, that's, but there's a reason why oh, I yeah. bought it now. And that's because I'm not guessing about those things anymore. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because the revenue is back to where it was. In other words, its sales are now back to the 2015 record level sales. And in that year, there were lines coming out of the stores. So now when you go and look at a Chipotle, you say, Yeah, but they have far oh, yeah, more stores lines than they did out in of the stores again. So that's and just because the revenue is at the same level doesn't mean that they're back to where they were before. I wouldn't say they're back to where they were before at all. Well, that's a good insight. On the other hand, the the point is that people are now starting to, oh, they're now forgetting about the E. coli problem, number one. Number two, Ells has led, you know, a industry standard that no one else in the industry is conforming to. And that's what Chipotle is setting as the new standard for health safety in these restaurants. So I, I'm, you know, I'm highly, you make a very good point. They have about 400 restaurants more than they have. Considerable. Had, mm -hmm. Right. So another, they've got another 20% restaurants or so, which is considerable. So that's, they're still about 20% short of where the revenue stream would be when it's fully recovered. Um, but they are putting a lot of stuff on sale. They're selling stuff cheaper to drive people back into the stores and, and get rid of that whole yeah. problem. Yeah. And absolutely. we've seen other companies that have gone through this same kind of problem. Yeah. And they've recovered, right? That's a recovery process. So we're taking advantage of of, uh, of this event right now with a high degree of confidence because number one, we have a founder in the driver's seat. Number two, we have no debt. And number three, that this is going to be worth more in 10 years than it is now, that we've got the confidence to move into this stock at this time. It's a good argument. So it's I'm a good argument. very few things right now, but I'm And I have my, to say, I totally support us talking about things like this on our podcast because I think we are, with our listeners, we're, we are all in this together. And I want us to all, <laughs> to all, like send us your, send us your emails about what you're interested in. And I know a lot of you are doing that, but also you and I, dad, can talk about specifics like this. And I don't think that we should worry in any way about having people listening to us get excited about some particular company. 
Good. And just remember, this is for education and entertainment. Education. And this is the entertainment portion. Whenever I say I'm buying something, that's just for your entertainment. Okay. Just have fun with that. Don't go buy something just because somebody else out there is buying it. We never do that. Although we want to piggyback great investors, we have to do our own homework. And here's the reason why, just to reiterate, is if this stock goes down more from 300 to 200, or let's say it goes to 400 and then down to 200, you have to be confident about that in your own right. You can't just go, oh, well, what's Phil Town thinking or what's Bill Ackman thinking right now? You've got to know what you're thinking. Are you happy it's at 200? So you can I buy couldn't more? agree more. Are you yeah, suddenly terrified point. that you made a terrible and mistake? I think also and the, we are recording this at a date that is not when it's typically put up on uh, on the internet for you guys. So we could have wrong information and different new information could have come out in between us recording this and the date that you're listening to it. So keep that in mind always. So this is definitely entertainment, yep. not advice in any way. Definitely. Definitely. And and just uh, to further make the point that, you know, we, we don't know everything. Um, in this particular investment, there's just two uh, investors that I really like a lot. There's Bill Ackman and David Pop, uh, David Pope rather. And um, Bill has a huge chunk of this thing, a big part of his portfolio, about 16% of his invested capital right now is in Chipotle and he owns 9.9% .9 of the company. He's a very activist investor with a very small book, right? Five or six companies. Um, so he's all in here. And um, and that really gives me a lot of confidence that I'm not being completely ridiculous to see be. at least one really you good investor be. is in there. Now, the question is, why yeah, aren't exactly. there more? Yeah. What are the rest of these guys thinking? How, what are, right? Exactly. Why aren't they just as happy as to do this as me? And I think the reason is they're just confident, just comfortable to wait through the process until they're quite sure that the market is rebounding, that they're completely, that Chipotle is all the way back. Whereas I'm already at that level of confidence and certainty. And the other thing is, I just figured these other guys are rich and they just That's don't go eat burritos thinking. at Chipotle. They must not be going and I to eat Chipotle. them there all the time and can get to a Chipotle. I think they're not going to Chipotle. I think they're eating down at the Blue Water Grill or something. I, this is not Chipotle. I have to say, Me? one of the things Chipotle, I really miss baby. about not so, living in America <laughs> is, first of all, good Mexican food at all. But secondly, Chipotle's special brand of Mexican food, which is so yummy. Man, no lie. No lie. So I think um, with that, we'll just wrap it up on this management section to just tell you that Management is definitely subjective judgment. Buffett likes to say that he would vote, he would put his money with people that he would like to have as a relation, as a brother-in-law, son-in-law. Um, we're not going to get that level of exposure to these people, so we're going to have to go on a couple other things. One, are they the founder? Two, is are they managing their debt correctly? And the, the no debt would be awesome. Three, do they have a big stake in the company as, a, as an owner of the company? So they're on the same side of the table as us. Uh, four, is there stuff out there that makes you not trust them in, in some way or another? Or is there stuff out there that makes you think or they is are there, a Or is there very little person? information at so all? So we're looking for and that. And then how does the, that inform your perspective if you just really very basically have all. no way of finding much out about them? Right on. And just remember, 
no matter how much you think that these guys are going to shoot straight, you don't know until there's a lot of pressure, a lot of crisis, and then you get to find out who's swimming naked uh, when the tide goes out, as they say. So with that, let's just recognize that management is a difficulty, that it's best to be copying somebody coming in behind a big investor who can actually speak with management um, when we don't have access. Uh, and be sure that debt is low so they don't have a, an incentive right to just yeah. totally take right. your yeah. sock away. I think that's about right. it right thanks, now. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Bye. Well, time to go play. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.